people. Welcome to No Normal People. I'm your host, Stephen Henning. And I'm also your host, Dixie Lee Henning. You are also the host. I am. That's true. Babe. We did it. Look at us. We're back. I know. Back at podcasting. Episode three. Yeah. We are introducing- How about that second episode, though? Excellent, right? The you, guest you mean, was you mean so you. good. Yeah. You're talking about you. Yeah, I'm talking about me. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, is the word guest a bit of a stretch? I was the guest. You were the and guest. And the host. And the creator. I am God. Trinity. (laughs) Three in one. (laughs) So episode three, we're coming at you. We're introducing the world to Josh Llewellyn. Yeah. Our good friend, even though when he came over for recording, it was probably the sixth time I've been in the same room as him. Yeah. You knew him for quite a while beforehand, getting to know him through being a barista and Mm -hmm. him being... A college student. We had him over in the middle of July. So this episode is coming at you six months after the fact. Um, It was our first ever recording of a guest. And Josh, as you'll learn from this interview, is an awesome person, also has a lot of stuff to say. So we actually have two episodes with Josh. So he will be episode three and episode four. You get a little bonus episode because we talked for about three and a half hours. That's right. And it was by accident. Yeah. We didn't it was mean so to good. Go, we didn't mean to go for three and a half nope. hours, but we did. Yeah. We basically turned our studio into a sauna. It was so warm in here. That is true. What's also true is that we've learned a lot about podcast hosting, interviewing, even audio engineering, editing, um, do you hear geese? Yep. It's. <laughs> <laughs> Look at them go. The flying V's. In this episode with Josh, part one, we talk a lot about uh, religion and we get into Josh's upbringing as well as an event held here in Billings called Beerlosophy. And in part two, we talk about Josh's band and his online satirical publication named The Billings Beat. Yeah, and as we said earlier, this was recorded six months ago, so he has since moved to Seattle. So some of the things that we talk about are still in existence, but not held directly by him. Correct. Some of the details may be a little outdated, but... So, without further ado, this is Josh Llewellyn. Are you ready? I'm very ready. Okay, here we go. Instagram or Twitter? Twitter. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Marvel or DC? Marvel. They're just better. It... Captain America or Iron Man? Iron Man. Pancakes or waffles? The pancakes. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Bozeman or Missoula? Probably Bozeman. To live in, I think I'd pick Missoula. Soda or pop? Well, I call it pop, but I don't drink it either. So. Hogwarts or the Shire? Mmm... 
since I didn't grow up seeing the movies at all, I think I'd like to visit Hogwarts. Yeah, that's the right answer. Disney or Pixar? Pixar. Pizza or tacos? Tacos. Introvert or extrovert? Yeah. Books or movies? Oh, books. Phone calls or texts? Oh, phone calls. Okay. It's about to get harder. Ready? Your secret talent. I can fit my whole fist inside my mouth. I also know quite a few magic tricks that most people don't know about. Sleight of hand. Like I know how to do a card trick over the phone. Stop. Okay, that's hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, could you do it? Like, Uh, like, if we recorded you saying it, could you? I don't think so. I'm not like David Blaine status, but (laughs) I can do it like over a live phone call. Oh, okay. Yeah. mm -hmm. Gotcha. I'm going to need you to put your entire fist in your mouth right now. Oh my God, I was kidding. He's doing it. Oh no. Holy crap. How? I have a really big mouth. That scared me. Do you want like a washcloth or something? What book would you consider required reading for the world? Oh, that is really difficult. I think maybe the required reading doesn't exist yet. Like we just need to teach people how to think better. Like basic logic, critical thinking skills. There's lots of, I feel like I'm much more of a personal book recommender versus like general book recommender. Tweet to live by. I think my most recent tweet, Alexa, make my decisions for me. Kind of hoped that would go semi-viral at least, but here we are. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, actually, your question about historical idol did remind me that I wanted to be kind of an inventor when I grew up. I don't even remember what I was thinking about back then, but... I mean, I think that was probably more of a stronger wish than the typical, like, I want to be an astronaut, cowboy, slash NBA star. So, Josh, I want to transition out of rapid fire questions. But first, I want to kind of tell you a story. A few years ago, I was at Off the Leaf, and I was sitting and reading a book. Personally, I forget which book I was reading. But, you know, kind of the Billings coffee culture, like, a lot of people know a lot of other people around the different coffee shops. And not just baristas, but also the customers, like, for probably months or even a year I knew who you were and I knew like I knew your name and I knew you like whenever you would walk in a room or in the the coffee shop or whatever I know like okay that's Josh but the the moment that convinced me that I knew like we'd probably be friends is uh when you you walked past me and you had a book that I had just bought on Amazon literally like the day before kind of a prime example of like the Bader Meinhof phenomenon when you like you buy a car and then you see the car all over the place, you know? So I had just bought the book and then you walked past me like the day after with it under your arm and you were going to get coffee and sit down. And it's the book I just recognized on your bookshelf. (laughs) This distinctly blue cover of uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God by Brian Zond. So you walked past with this book and this, this was like when my personal like Christian theology was evolving quite a bit and that book kind of kicked me off on a lot of different other evolutions and questions and all that. But pair your approachability and your friendliness just your general attitude with you carrying that book like I knew we were going to be friends because even if we don't agree with the same book we're at least reading the same book and I felt like I knew a lot about you just by the fact that you were carrying that book so let's let's get into knowing you a little bit better Uh, we wanted to ask what you currently do for work oh well I'm currently a barista uh, for the second time Joining the Billings coffee culture on the other side of the counter. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, for real. Because we know you're a famous customer. I love that that's how you framed it. Like, I've never thought of myself as like a famous coffee customer, but... (laughs) Everyone knows who you are. I kind of like that. 
So you currently work at... I work at Black Dog Coffee House. Mm -hmm. I've been there for a couple months, two or three months. Yeah. It's like one of those shops that I've been familiar with since it opened, but... Yeah, and that's a fairly new addition to Billings as well, right? Yeah, uh, they just celebrated their two-year anniversary yesterday. Hey, look at that. It's crazy to, like, have seen, like, been involved in the coffee culture here in Billings for enough years to see it grow, bloom, in front, right in front of me. Like, yeah, you see it bloom? That's so good. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, I've always thought it was interesting, kind of the Billings coffee culture thing you know like off the leaf was really what kicked it off um and then we started big time places like moab and eben pop up mm -hmm. um, and the annex mazevo seems just recently and now they have two locations yeah mm -hmm. um moab just opened their west end location yeah. uh, they also supply the the coffee shop at faith chapel but yeah it is pretty cool like i've i've thought about that a lot like because that's where i met you dixie was it off the leaf and i don't remember how long you were there for uh two years I think. was it two years because I, so. I honestly didn't start drinking coffee until college like i only started going there to study because yeah. it was open so late and now i just like drink it all the time you always <laughs> had a campana like yes, that that's always that's all you drank yeah <laughs> every time you walk you okay you would come to off the leaf you would buy that and then you would tip more than the drink actually cost I'm impressed that you remember both of those things. Of course I remember that. I, you're a barista now, you know. Like, like a customer walks in and you're like, oh, tall iced white chocolate? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Although to be honest, I got that more at my last job than I, I did at this job, which is interesting. And I don't know if it's because it's coffee and I, there's like less variety in coffee, but... But I totally know what you mean. Like, you just get to know people's orders and that's... Well, I mean, like, working at City Brew, like, we got to know everybody's order because there were those people that always ordered the same thing. But I think yeah. with specialty coffee more, it's like people are more willing to try yeah, different definitely. things or they actually literally don't know what things are. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. a macchiato. Yeah. <laughs> don't even get me started. That could be a whole... <laughs> A whole segment of the podcast is barista pet peeves. Yes. Oh my, oh my gosh. God, that's a good podcast idea. Hey, let's start a podcast. Sure. <laughs> so you mentioned your introduction to coffee was more out of necessity for studying and probably staying awake and staying up late at a yeah. place that was open past 11. Right. Where did you study? Where did I study? Oh, well, my first answer was going to be off the leaf. And I was like, it can't be what he's <laughs> asking. Like, we already talked about that. <laughs> yeah. What did you go to college for? Where did yeah, you go? Yeah. I went to college at Rocky Mountain College here in Billings, uh, and I double majored in psychology and sociology. Nice. Mm -hmm. Did you graduate? Yeah, bachelor's degree. I did an undergrad thesis, um, did a little bit of research in there. Hmm. Yeah. We went to Rocky. Did you guys go to Rocky? For a whole two years. Crushed oh. it. Oh. Didn't graduate, though. <laughs> it's, it's not for everybody. It's a bad school to experiment with what your major should be. Yeah. yeah. It's rather expensive. I'm also a chronic quitter. So. <laughs> also, there's no specialization in anything. So even if you know what you want to major in, you can't like get a specialized degree. What was your thesis on? Uh, my thesis was called How It Works, quote unquote, an interdisciplinary perspective on the spirituality of Alcoholics Anonymous. What? Wow. I want to read you, that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Yeah, please. I, it's uh, it's also published. It's on uh, Rocky Mountain College's website. So you, if you Google it, you can find it. I did title it so that it would be easily findable because I don't know if you're familiar with AA at all, but how it works is the fifth chapter title oh, of the big book. Clever. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's excellent. Could you give us like a like an abstract 
flyby or uh basically this is kind of working off of some of the more philosophical side of psychology but that we can scientifically study the phenomenon and experience of the spiritual religious experience and also by doing that we can help distinguish between the spiritual and the religious experience therefore aa is a like the primary group that we could do that with um and also by scientifically studying that phenomenon it will more well establish that just because we can see the mechanics like like for instance in this case the biology and the psychology and the social structure behind how spirituality is like taking form that doesn't mean that it's reduced to those mechanics and so that's kind of based off of like uh william james's foundational theory of like what neuropsychology has become in that even if we see uh like neurons firing in the religious experience, that doesn't mean the religious experience is just neurons firing. What? That's just the mechanism behind it. Okay, so there, there, there's a mechanism to whatever is uh, like transcendently <clears throat> happening beyond just, you know, electricity flowing through the brain, chemicals being released. Right, right. For instance, with AA, we can see that there's positive psychology at work, right? Like there's, there's verbal affirmation of the individual person, but that doesn't mean that they are only experiencing like personal affirmation because there's also like biology and like social structure at play too. So it's multifactorial and even like being able to identify m- multiple factors doesn't mean it's just those factors either. Right. That is oh. impressive. I'm going to read that. Yeah, I'll send it to you guys. Yeah. Oh, what kind of background to religion or spirituality were you bringing when you were going in to study this in college? How did, how did I guess, to kind of go Krista Tippett on you, like what was, what was the spiritual background of your childhood? What kind of things were you approaching this research with uh, to begin with? No, that's a good question. Well, at the time, uh, what really got me interested in it was I was employed at a rehab center so part of my job was to take people to AA or NA meetings. So for 10 months there as a person who socially drinks, like I was going to AA meetings on a regular basis, like two or three times Interesting. a week. Interesting. Um, as a, not as a participant, but as a, like an observer uh, supporter. But yeah, to answer your question about spiritual background, I did start noticing um, quite a few parallels between some of the language of AA and some of the way they describe the progression of spirituality and like what it means to be saved from their alcoholism. I noticed a lot of parallels between that and the Christianity that I was raised with. And so that's honestly what started it as a research interest. I grew up uh, in a Baptist church. Uh, my dad is, has been a pastor my whole life. Uh, so I've grown up like as a pastor's kid. I, I think even since high school, I've been uncomfortable using uh, like my a denominational identity to describe myself. So I've always, I've always framed it in terms of, I go to a Baptist church and like I'm raised Christian. And, and I, there's been a lot of nuance there too, for sure. For instance, once a year, uh, my parents would take us to this conference that was started in the American Baptist denomination, but was pretty Pentecostal, pretty charismatic and um, very like, like spirit led, like to use that phrase. But yeah, describing myself as Baptist I has, and I think this is, mostly because this is where I like the conversation to go. Um, but it's been helpful to bring up distinctions between Baptists and even like bring up denominational distinctions within Christianity anyway. For instance, like going to a pretty conservative, different Baptist church the last five years has been pretty helpful in like having a good contrast bet- for people between like what, like a Southern conservative Baptist church is different from 
like an American Baptist church and why there's a little bit of a difference there. And for instance, like I never, I didn't realize growing up until I like had the contrast of going to a much more conservative church that American Baptists are kind of liberal. Like I never really noticed that before. And it's funny because like when I was like in the, when I was in the midst of it, like it was, it was framed as pretty conservative. Right. Right. I don't know. It's, that's been an interesting thing to notice too. And, and then actually, I don't know if you guys know this either. Uh, but after that, after like high school, I went out to a ministry school out in Michigan that was like connected to that conference that was pretty charismatic. And they ran a full-time ministry school out of their church. I mean, really small operation didn't last long anyway, but, um, the year I went out there, they were still having full-time students. I think we took 12 classes total and, um, pretty informed by bigger name churches like Bethel and IHOP and some of those guys. Um, and, and so I did that before I like came back to go to college here in Billings. So that's also been part of my spiritual experience, which is interesting to look back on yeah. as like a, a year so big on personal development and growth and thinking for myself right. and also recognizing that I've left some of that behind right. as well, yes. which is really, really interesting. That's what I wanted to ask about next. Like what, like the traje- trajectory so far that you've described is you were basically born into a Christian house. So you could probably say you were like, I don't remember not being a Christian, right? You don't yeah. remember you're like, your salvation moment or whatever you pray the sinner's prayer. (laughs) But so you grew up fairly like standard traditional Baptist. And then it sounds like you kind of moved into a more like charismatic expression of worship or belief. How, how far does that progression go? I guess, how, how would you compare where you're at today sitting in our studio here and, you know, over the last few years? That's a good question. I started going to uh, the church I'm still currently attending with definitely more of a charismatic bent than I have now. Uh, Like I was definitely the kind of, I think a lot of those ministry schools uh, are framed as like, you should go to this school and like learn like these things and then like take it back to your own church and community to like help shape the culture there. So at the time I was really excited about that angle and helping like this new church that I was starting to go to become like more like the things that I wanted to see. And even though I think I still have that angle, it's uh, not like the charismatic angle. It's like, I'm wanting it to be different in other ways. And I'm not sure like where along the way I started to leave a lot of that like charismatic Pentecostal emphasis behind. As kind of a prime example, what I have in mind, reading a book called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God (laughs) kind of flies directly in the face of kind of that Puritan Jonathan Edwards, you know, his famous sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon. But that, that seems like a good example mm-hmm. of how far you've kind of, I don't want to say strayed from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess if, I guess if I was going to use some labels, I would say that somewhere along the way, I just started to be uh, lean more towards being contemplative. Right. And I think that was just a result of like reading more along the way and letting my thoughts be shaped um, by what I was learning. And I think a lot of places I'll promote like self-identification and like open-mindedness, but as long as it's our open-mindedness. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because like, for instance, I have never felt comfortable being a member of that church, even though I have different reasoning now than when I did at the beginning, which is interesting. Okay, so we got started here talking about your double major at Rocky. Psychology, remind me of the double major? And sociology. Sociology, okay. 
um, it sure seems like sociology and psychology would both kind of lend themselves to your interest in theology, interest in philosophy. Would you talk a little bit about the, uh, the event you hold locally? Yeah. So I've, uh, I've hosted this event called, uh, Beerlosophy. I'll admit it's not the most creative name. Uh, we kind of just like took the word beer and, uh, put it on the word philosophy. Yeah. It, it started with my friend Forrest and I, and a couple other friends who I would consider, uh, what's the right word? Not like founding members, but like, were you like the, the first uh, pioneering members, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. Founding members still fits, but Forrest and I were the uh, main like hosts slash facilitators of it. Uh, Honestly, it started it off the leaf. Like we would just sit at the bar and like have these conversations um, about like things we were thinking about and like some of the questioning and like critical thinking we had going on. Um, Especially because a couple of us were still students at the time and quite a few people that would join in those discussions would like comment multiple times on like how much they're just really loving it and you know usually people would just have to go and so eventually we were like we should we should just set time aside for this like this is really really good and like we really enjoy talking about these things and um there was a lot of uh formation in the beginning about what it could be like should we read some of the great works like by aristotle and plato and and like make it kind of book clubby or you know, should it be like a podcast or something like that? <laughs> but also not a bad idea. <laughs> Make a note of that. But, Beerlosophy. Yeah. <laughs> I seriously considered buying the domain name for a while, but it's it's still out there. Right. Uh, but long story short, uh, even though it's fluctuated over time, whether it's been every week or once a month or every other week, it's just been a time set aside to come together, have a drink and discuss some of the like bigger questions on our minds and help each other wrestle with things kind of in the same vein inspired by uh, like c.s lewis and tolkien having the inklings yeah. as a regular group to meet together and i've i don't i don't think this is super insensitive but i've also kind of joked that it's like a combination of aa but the opposite of it we're because we're actively drinking but also like pretty moderately for the most part i mean we're in a brew pub culture and not like a dive bar scene and also that combined with Reddit, but in person. Right. That's so Uh good. And also a little bit of, and a little bit of British parliament thrown in there. Like if you're not yelling at someone by the end, you're kind of doing it wrong. It does get rather ruckus. Yeah. As it should. Dixie and I visited once and I think the group, I tell me if this was a large group or a a smaller group, but I think we probably had three or four tables pushed together and we had, I want to say at least 15 to 20 people. Yeah. Is that about standard for? I'd say that was pretty group? standard in the beginning. It was about uh, six to eight people, and to be honest, I think the best discussions happen in like clumps of six. Anything greater than that, and it starts to split, and, and honestly, it's hard to have a single coherent conversation. Yeah, that was that was certainly a wild night for me. Um, I, you know, being a an avid podcast listener, I tend to be the, like the fly on the wall kind of yeah. person yeah. instead yeah. of the contributor. Which I've I've had a lot of people give that feedback that they just love to come to listen. Yeah, it was interesting. The first beer philosophy was was a wild experience for me. Like I said, I like being the listener probably more than the contributor. Obviously, kind of eating my own uh, yeah. foot with that one. Starting a podcast. Yeah, no. The night started with uh, what uh, 2018 film impacted us the most, and then I vividly remember a very heated discussion about the the Trump border wall. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the group start, kind of started splitting 
there was a lot about like Freudian psychology, kind of sexual development. And then the, the night ended with a group of us talking about contemplative theology. And mostly yeah, yeah. We, we had a, we had quite the conversation about what it means to be a, uh, a modern day American and a follower of Christ. Which, to be honest, was one of the, uh, which was wonderful. I, I remember that night well. And it, but it was one of the few nights where the discussion tended to be mostly religious. Like I would say by and large, so I've hosted over, uh, how many now? Over a hundred um, throughout two years. But for the most part, religion and politics don't come up a ton unless someone is really, really avid about talking about it. It's kind of like, it's kind of a running joke that the first person to bring up religion at beer philosophy. I mean, it's called, it's called beer philosophy, not beer religion or something. I don't know, you know, but it's kind of a running joke that the first person to bring up religion was the atheist among us. Yeah. But yeah, even like, politics tend to not come up a ton a while back i wrote down like three mission statements i kind of hate calling that but like goals maybe yeah maybe like goals of philosophy like guiding principles if you will that philosophy is there to ask thought-provoking questions instead of just complaining that it's there to critically engage with the opinions of others instead of just disagreeing at face value and three, to have the philosophical imagination to see things from new perspectives instead of assuming we have a complete view. And so for me, like as I'm like writing down questions throughout the week, and there's certainly been seasons where I've done that more than others, but as I'm writing down questions, I'm always having those in the back of my mind. I love that rule three. I think one of the bigger takeaways that I get, I always get from uh, the Rob cast, he always talks about how everyone is your teacher. Like yeah, you should assume yeah. that you don't know something and that you can learn from anything, even if it's a false interaction or not a false, a negative interaction or a straight up false interpretation. Yeah. yeah. Even yeah. that can teach you something about yourself, about the way you viscerally yeah. react to an attack yes. or which has honestly been kind of incredible because like I've, I think I'm already a pretty good discusser and conversational mediator, especially when people are disagreeing and I'm, and I am able to say, I think you're you're saying this and you're saying this. And I think that you guys are like swiping past each other a little bit. And here's your misunderstanding. I think maybe a bit. Um, yeah, but I, I love that perspective that I think anyone, like we should have that perspective that anyone and anything can be our teacher, which has honestly kind of blown me away that like, I did not expect for the last two years that philosophy would be such a crux of my spiritual development. It's kind of been incredible. And considering that you don't really talk about, that much theology or spirituality or religion. Yeah, not really at all. But it's like the, uh, this sounds really cliche, but like the bigger, deeper questions underlying everything. Like even one night that's really memorable for me, I don't remember how it came up, but we debated uh, which one would be more valuable to fund if we had to choose sex ed or nutrition ed. Oh, yeah. And that, that went for like three hours and got really nuanced and changed some people's opinions and I think I still have the same opinion, but just the, <laughs> but just to like think about something so critically that's also kind of unrealistic right. in some ways, but it like leads us to the, the realism right in front of us, I think. And realizing how important topics like that are to other people, Absolutely. even if you're not worried about it, like you might be really passionate about sex ed, but like totally oblivious to nutrition and like the benefits of that. I I'm glad you said too that you think you probably still have the same opinion as you went into it. The stereotype for a, any formal kind of debate is it's just going to entrench mm -hmm. the arguer into like further into their position. 
right. they're not going to change their minds. But what I appreciate about you modeling that is saying, I was there with an open mind. I can, I can see why other people think, you know, nutrition ed is more valuable than sex ed. And like you walk away with the same opinion, but it's not like you didn't listen and you didn't try to like embody what they were feeling on the other side. Right. Or understanding their point of view. Like stop trying to change their opinion. Just listen to what they're saying. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's very like seek first to understand before you seek to be understood. Yes. Yeah. Which has definitely been a challenge for me in a lot of ways in that group. I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, I thought I was pretty good at and then you learn you're not. <laughs> I, te- I tend to be breath- rather quiet in situations like that because I definitely like to start arguments. Totally. I'm like, let's, well, what's been let's really cool to see, it. I, it's funny that that example sticks out so much in my mind because that was one of the more debatey examples that we had. But oftentimes, I think that we strayed away from making like a dualistic black and white false or not dichotomy. Usually it was more open-ended questions like, like where do we think our ideas come from and like are all ideas inevitable like more like open ended imaginative type questioning do you, do you like playing kind of a devil's ad- advocate not as much um when my friend Forrest was still helping host he would often devil's advocate quite a bit he was he's really really good at it usually he would like argue himself into a corner and like make someone get him out of it i think i'm better at clarifying questions and like helping someone clarify what they are actually saying. Whereas Dixie, like as soon as she senses a spark of conflict, she's just going to dump a gallon of gasoline on it. That's incredible. Let's get it. I'm the opposite. (laughs) Defend yourself, bro. (laughs) Get into it. I'm an eight. Like, even if I agree with you, like I want you to be able to defend yourself against me. (laughs) Like prove to me that you actually care about the thing that you're talking about. Which is funny because I used to be that person. Like thinking back to like my ministry school years, like I loved Christian apologetics, like to see like reasoning and logic behind uh, what I'm believing and like, of course, what I'm being told I believe too as well. Um, But being able to debate and answer people's hard questions. But I totally used to feel way more defensive about it than just um, exploratory. Christian apologetics. I kind of want to go down that road. Oh, okay. Father Richard Rohr. Mm. Our Lord and Savior. Our Lord and Savior, <laughs> Richard Rohr. Well, okay, so that's an interesting thing, isn't it? So <laughs> I'll, I'll pose my first question, okay. and we'll get back to your little joke about our Lord and Savior, Richard Rohr. <laughs> um, Richard Rohr talks about how an integrated Christian spirituality ought to... He, he, he talks about it in the, in the form of a tricycle. I just heard him use this example. What podcast did you just listen to? Uh, maybe the liturgist. Yeah, it was that one. Yeah. I love that we listen to the same podcast sometimes. That's wonderful. Yes. A tricycle. Yeah. I believe he talks about the first wheel being your wheel of experience and that that's your driving force and that the other two wheels are scripture and tradition. Correct. Yeah. I do like that analogy. That's the first time I had heard that analogy. I love the way he balances that too. Like you have your personal experience. You like, he might call experience. Uh, Christ consciousness or sure. like Holy Spirit presence, but it's it's a very personal experience that you have as a soul connected to God, right? Yes. And tradition, church tradition, and Scripture sit on the back wheel, kind of providing direction and stability. Mm-hmm. But you're still you're leading your you know, like the head of the spear 
to choose a different analogy, the, the very tip is experience. Now that will get fairly conservative Catholics get their hackles up because church tradition has been everything to them. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they kind of, they, they sit in a life where church tradition through, I mean, even St. Peter serving as the first Pope. Well, and it makes sense for him to say that, I think, being such a heavy contemplative. But it is interesting, too, that he's embedded in the Catholic tradition and he's trying to put not as much emphasis on the tradition. Exactly, which is interesting because you and I, we come from a Protestant background where Luther would say sola scriptura. He would want the tricycle to be led with scripture and then maybe lean on tradition or experience. And it's funny because like, as I think back to my, my year in ministry school, I think that if they had used the same analogy, they probably would have said front wheel is the Holy spirit leading us and leading the tricycle of maybe scripture and community or something like that. And it's interesting because I don't think that's that far off from a contemplative saying we are led by our experience. Like on a functional level, it's really not that different. That's true. What's interesting about that is that, yeah, the the spirit might lead, but whatever we lean back on, like uh, charismatics or like a a charisma fronted church almost wants to just completely divorce themselves from tradition. Like we're doing a brand new thing. This is a new millennium. Yeah. Yeah. And that is very representative of what sociologists are observing in the American church currently. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I read this book about a year ago, about uh, the growth of independent network Christianity. How um, they, they mostly looked at some bigger hubs like like Bethel and IHOP and then some connected organizations, um, whether they're under or they're like some sort of parallel organization. But it was a pretty detailed research book on how these churches are emerging in more of a network-like structure than any other form of denominational growth that they've ever seen. Which is interesting because you think denomination and you think structure, you think hierarchy, you think there's a hub and then there's spokes. Right. There's a conference every year. Mm -hmm. Hashtag Southern Baptist Convention. Versus like like these, for instance, uh, like Bethel and I have great examples where they're trying to do this like sort of charismatic thing. Like we're starting our own thing, but we're not starting a denomination. Oh, we're going to like have these conferences and like network with all these people. And even us, are, we're going to like cross network a bit and do some conferencing together. But we're not each other and we're also not starting our own denomination. Which is kind of what I was saying. Like they, they almost want to divorce completely from tradition at all, yeah. which is what I love about uh, more of a like a mystical contemplative path. Like Richard Rohr, he's a Franciscan, Franciscan. friar, right? And he, he leads a little parish in New Mexico. He leans into the, the Catholic, the catechisms, the... the uh, sacraments, practicing of the Eucharist, practicing of blessing the holy water for baptism. He leans into that, but all as a symbol and all as a uh, metaphor analogy of what, what it all is. You know, but no, I, I like the, I like what you're bringing up there. I don't remember where I came up with this analogy for myself. I, in some ways I feel like along these lines of tradition, I feel like I've been handed grandma's box of recipes and I grew up eating these these dishes that she cooked, you know, my whole childhood, I know what they taste like and I know how they're done well. And now I have the box of recipes and I get to cook them for myself, whether that means like throwing my own flair in there and maybe substituting some new ingredients and things like that. But it's interesting that that I think I've had that analogy for probably over a year now for myself and it still feels pretty, pretty close to how I feel about being embedded within the Christian tradition. Well, what I like about that too is like, you know, there's the whole Twitter movement, like hashtag exvangelical, where 
a lot of people are kind of rebelling against the the, the grandma's recipes they were handed. I'm not eating this crap anymore, grandma. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's interesting, like if we're not looking for a middle ground, which is something you're modeling in bureaucracy as well. If we're not looking for a middle ground where we can say yes and instead of no but or you know, if we can say yes and, then we're kind of bridging the gap. Um, so the ex-evangelical community might be moving from being they, they want to move away from being fundamentalist Christian, uh, like very hard set in dogma, all that. But what I don't like about the ex-evangelical movement is that they moved into a fundamentalism on the other side where now they're the militant version of being the anti. Have you ever, have you ever heard of horseshoe theory? No, it's mostly applied in the, in uh, political science, but instead of something being portrayed as a spectrum, it portrays that, that sort of like movement more as a horseshoe. And so that anything on the extreme of either end is actually more alike to the other extreme than it is to the middle. Almost like a bell curve. Yeah. Like a bell curve sort of, except like continuing like not in a circular way, but curvy in. Yeah. If you look up horseshoe theory, you'll find a Wikipedia page. Yeah. But I've thought about that for myself in terms of like religion or belief and or doctrines within belief. And for those of us moving into what we hope is more of a contemplative way, Richard Rohr talks about the contemplative way being a yes and being kind of transcending a non-dual thinking. You're either right or left. Yeah. So your joke about Richard Rohr, our Lord and Savior... <laughs> I wanted to get there because I think a lot of people who might discover people like Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, Thomas Merton, some of those contemplatives, they'll start reading those books to replace something like a Wayne Grudem or a, or, or a Matt Chandler or a Tim Keller. You know, there's the, there's the quote unquote right or conservative Christianity that is uh, probably represented well by reformed theology, maybe Calvinism. And then on the other side, what we call liberal Christianity. We see people like Rob Bell arguing for Christian universalism. Mm -hmm. We see Richard Rohr writing a book called the universal Christ who might be making a suggestion that the world is panentheistic saying God in everything, not pantheism where God is everything, but God is in everything. He likes to say that I think it's Elizabeth Browning. Every bush is a light with the flame of God. Those who recognize it, take their sandals off for they know it's holy ground. The rest of us will sit around the bush picking blackberries. Oh, I just got goose pimples. <laughs> or, or Richard Rohr would lean into um, blessing the holy water in in a, a Catholic ceremony. Not to say that this water is now set apart from all the other water, but he's saying, I'm blessing this water to show you that all water is blessed. Oh, yeah, yeah. He definitely says a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. So we're moving to that direction and... I personally feel like some of those positions might lend us toward the top of the horseshoe yeah. and not the other side. But I think we can hope. I think it's always easy for someone to slide down the other side of the horseshoe as soon as they get some momentum. I, I can't tell you how many times at Bureaucracy, uh, and it was mostly with the atheists, that would, they would say some critique about God or the church or Christianity. And I would say, I'm 100% on your page, like completely agree with that critique. And multiple times, I, and this has happened in some online spheres as well, but multiple times they'd say, like, I don't understand how you are agreeing with me and still calling yourself a Christian. And them being like, this is the reason I rejected Christianity. And me saying, I'm, I'm sorry that that's what made you walk away. Like, I agree that that's completely 
an incorrect view, but that you're just rejecting that flavor of Christianity. And that's what gives us that yes and attitude moving beyond, you know, there's paradoxes littered throughout our Christian tradition. Mary being the Holy Mother and a virgin. That's a paradox that... Slash maybe a bad interpretation. Maybe. But maybe any enlightenment interpretation would say it can't be both. Whereas a non-dual, more of a contemplative path says it's both. And I'm okay resting in the paradox, the contradiction, the nuance. And also trying to figure out like what it's actually trying to get at rather than just the facts. Correct. Mm-hmm. The last couple of years, I feel like I've really enjoyed, even as my own beliefs have changed over time, I've really enjoyed highlighting the diversity of Christian thought, whether that's been online or in person or about a specific topic or not. Uh, being able to say like, this, this person is a Christian that you are disagreeing with, and I also disagree with them. We're like still calling ourselves within the same tradition, even if I think they are explicitly incorrect. <laughs> that's excellent. So I don't want to presume considering we've kind of been going down this particular path for quite a few minutes. Um, what I want to ask kind of two questions in one, what are you passionate about and, or what do you think about and talk about forever? Like what, what could you constantly be talking about? And if it's this, we can move on to a new question. It might be things like this, like in, in thinking about the diversity of podcasts and certainly Christian in sort of in the Christian vein podcasts I've been able to listen to over the last couple of years. I mean, everything from apologetics to Richard Rohr to the liturgist, the Bible for normal people, more philosophical things. But I love making people think and like rethink about what they're already thinking about. And uh, like not to, not just to challenge them and maybe hint at the fact that they might be wrong perhaps, but also that also highlighting different views and even different views within their own tradition and like highlighting the fact that like our beliefs don't exist in a vacuum. And yeah, what's interesting to me too, is how many, how many of our traditions or beliefs or, or thoughts are almost preconditioned mm-hmm. um, by the fact that we were, you know, we were born in Montana yeah, <laughs> in absolutely. the, in the late nineties, <laughs> early nineties. It's fine. And yeah, whether that's been at philosophy or my own, church culture or just like among my friends, I think our beliefs are often handed to us like one big goodie basket we have to accept and we're not allowed to. But you're not allowed to like pick out each Easter egg. Yeah. And examine it for yourself. Do you want to keep this in your basket? Yeah. And I think some Christians, uh, and I think this applies to more things than just religion, but I think that some Christians are are good at um, recognizing what can be a primary belief of importance and what's more of a secondary issue. Like for instance, uh, within the Christian tradition, hell is a really good example of this. Like what's usually portrayed as the normative Christian view is eternal conscious torment. But even in mainline Christianity, that's not really the only option or interpretation among scholars. Like there's, there's certainly other options, but that's usually lumped into the way we tell the story of salvation and like what we needed rescuing from. And so usually it's like implied as a given versus we can think about this. Yeah. Well, and that kind of highlights to kind of the American background to our Christianity. I think it, it's really easy to assume, you know, like we're the, the greatest superpower the world has ever seen. Right. Uh, if we're, if we're tracking the trajectory of the Bible, 
American Christians can't read themselves into Israel being the exiled nation who gets to come back. We Americans Americans have to read ourselves into the story as we belong as citizens of Babylon and or Rome. We are not Israel. But at the same time, in like thinking about a more contemplative tradition, even though I completely agree with we shouldn't be reading scripture that way, I'm like thinking these days along the lines of, oh, I should be reading myself into the text. Like, I am experiencing these things and in a contemplative way, not that like this is written to me, but like what is it, for instance, with Exodus, like trying to think about the spiritual implications behind it and not just like the apologetic, oh, did this happen or did it not happen? And that proves the Bible is factually true, but trying to think about the spiritual truth of what it points us to in Christ, like, oh, like what does it mean to go through a spiritual migration? Like, what is this story about now? What does it mean to be rescued and then still want the thing that you were rescued from? And like, what does it mean to like spiritually wander? And because like on one hand, I can completely agree with like, we should not be reading this biblical story that was written thousands of years ago into our current nationalistic structure. It certainly is not written to us, but like, what does it mean to like read this document in a spiritual contemplative way that is pointing us to Jesus. That is so good. Well, using, using Exodus as an example, um, it's almost like, uh, Jesus would go ahead and embody the Exodus story by his 40 days and oh, nights yeah. in yeah, the which, gospel of Mark, which millions of pastors would make the parallel. Correct. And maybe we get to it, like, we get to imagine ourselves in the story and see exactly what, what does it mean to be somebody called out of just the standard way of doing things, the standard empire structure, the standard nationalist, you know, we are Egypt, we have the pyramids, let God challenge us now. And then yeah. God does. Uh, and what does it mean to be the people who are called to almost exile themselves from that kind of structure? Yeah. And then long for what they had in the past because it's way too hard out here in the wilderness at the foot of Sinai. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. There's some really interesting stuff there. Hey guys, this is Steven. We hope you're enjoying this first episode we have with Josh Llewellyn. If you like what you're hearing, the best place to tell us about it would be on Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us a five-star review and tell us what you like. Another great way to connect with us would be on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at KnowPeoplePod. That's K-N-O-W PeoplePod. So to lighten it up a bit, uh, maybe not lighten it up. I, I, I wanted to ask, um, do you have any particular morning routines or evening routines that you like oh, to follow? Oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. Well, you don't eat breakfast. You're right. I don't eat breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. I started doing this uh, fancy millennial thing called intermittent fasting a couple years ago. <laughs> Which is basically just an excuse for me to not eat breakfast. But to be honest, it's it's definitely changed my relationship with food. Yeah, it's been working out. <laughs> what got me started on it is I am lazy and someone told me some science behind it that you can basically like maintain your caloric intake and not need to work out. Yeah, having a larger window of time where you're not eating and your time of eating be a bit more restricted. For instance, like the one that I tend to do is only having an eight-hour window 
where I eat. So usually to answer your question about morning routines, like I'm usually not eating and I'm usually trying to drink water, maybe drinking coffee, maybe drinking tea. I usually shower. That's a good morning routine. I like that. Thank you. It's been interesting to think of, oh, you're welcome. It has been interesting to think, for instance, this last year in thinking about some of the things in my life that have been more consistent over the past five years or so, shifting a bit. Um, So it's been interesting to think about some of the routines that I want to do and the way that routine does keep me grounded a bit. For instance, like journaling is an interesting example because I've I've journaled off and on the last couple years and certainly was uh, encouraged in ministry school as a spiritual formation, contemplative practice, you know, still emphasizing like the more or less daily importance of it. And even though that's a thing that I find a lot of value in and I know is quote unquote good for me, like it certainly helps me process things. I don't do it regularly, even though I want to. When you were doing it even off and on, was were there any kind of templates you would follow? You know, one thing that I really liked about the uh, pastor out at the ministry school that I was at, um, who was also a philosophy and a logic professor, like very, very smart man. Good for you. Um, he, he emphasized that even though our homework, quote unquote, for his spiritual formation class was to journal and have you know, quiet times, it was definitely framed in that in those terms, he still suggested we only do it five days a week. Because we're not going to do it seven days a week. And then the minute we, the minute we like set ourselves up for that, we're really setting ourselves up for failure because at some point we're not going to do it sure. and then we won't do it. And then, you feel guilty and then we're going to feel guilty and then we're not going to do it again. And so, <laughs> so I really liked that, adv- that advice because we could use some really Christianese language and say like, it allows room for grace and failure. And, <laughs> but I think that that's kind of real. Like, I think we get stuck in these psychological traps and hold ourselves up to like expectations that are really unrealistic. Well, and as soon as any habit or practice becomes a must, I I would argue you're not getting the value that you could be out of it. If it's something yeah. you get to do or can do, yes. it's a lot different than something you have to do. And if you feel guilty about missing a day journaling, mm-hmm. then you should probably stop journaling for a couple of weeks until you can get your attitude right. toward right. it. Like if you're not, if, if the only benefit you're getting from it is the fact that you can check another box saying like, I did my good Christian thing or am I good self-help improvement thing? Like I did what the book said. Is that really helping at all? So with, uh, with your older journaling practices, did it involve like writing out prayer? Would you read, read scripture and reflect on it? Yeah. I think it would take a lot of forms as I like ventured between different Bible reading plans, um, with different emphases. I think that it allowed me to see like how much I could really like make it for myself, Uh, whether like it was processing through what I was reading and learning, or I was um, going through like specific passages in the Bible and whether I was like being imaginative about that or trying to be a little bit more interpretive about like what I thought is trying to be said by the text. (laughs) Um, You made me think of something else and I'm trying to remember what it was exactly. It was along the lines of journaling. Um, Oh, you, you made me think of, uh, intermittent fasting again and uh how i i hadn't made this connection before which is interesting but and i feel bad quoting this because i don't have a primary source to point to but a friend was telling me that um there's some research and studies and i don't know how well this is studied yet that suggests that intermittent fasting and i believe it was 16 8 so you're only eating for eight hours during the day that it suggests that weekend that only doing it five days a week and two days off 
is actually slightly more effective anyway. Wow, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that, I think there's a lot of factors there, right? Like those two days being consecutive and always the same and doing it on a consistent basis anyway. So there's a lot going on there, but I hadn't made that connection before. And that's, that's kind of interesting. So um, do you practice 16-8? Ish. Uh, As a general rule, I tend to not eat before 10. And sometimes I go as late as two without eating. Or if it just like gets late enough in the day, Sometimes I'm like, well, maybe I'll just throw a 24 hour fast in there. Let's sure. see, see how that we goes. We usually aim for something like six to 10 or 10 AM to 6 PM. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Um, but usually I'm pretty mindful of whenever I start eating, I only have eight hours to eat after that. Oh, like you said a mental timer almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for instance, on days like that, I would have beer philosophy and I knew I could potentially be drinking up until 10. Usually I'd try to not eat until two, which isn't usually how people recommend you intermittent fast anyway, but it's definitely made me more mindful of when I'm eating and how I'm eating and what I'm eating, even though I, I really don't restrict my diet. Otherwise, I mean, I tend to eat, I tend to eat wholeer foods. Um, but also I just don't worry about it that much. I tend to only drink coffee after 9am. I can't drink caffeine past like four. Oh, really? You're one of the few baristas I've ever heard say that. I, like, I rarely drink coffee, which is awkward being a barista. <laughs> well, I noticed, I this is more anecdotal than anything, even though I'm sure there's research on this, but I noticed that I would tend to be more groggy consistently if I also tended to drink caffeine earlier. And I know it's correlation, um, even though I think there can be some causal factors in there, but I, I've noticed that if I tend to drink coffee after 9 a.m i tend to not wake up as groggy okay black coffee do you like cream and sugar uh i usually don't cream or sugar if i do some milk because i also don't drink milk by itself anymore if i do some milk it's usually in the form of a cortado uh, or a cappuccino so very minimal milk drinks you're not swearing off dairy per se but you you don't just have a glass of whole milk aim for aim for minimalism right like Cutting things out completely is really difficult. Anything more than eight ounces with coffee or milk, I'm like, Bleh. no, thank you. Can't do it. But yeah, other routines. I'm trying to think of like some other daily routines. I have been thinking a lot this last year of how consistent my weeks usually are, especially between like church involvement um, or philosophy or things like, or even like things in my life that are irregularly scheduled, but also pretty predictable like whether that's uh, a band gig or group involvement or you know things like that it's so it's been interesting to think of some of the ways in which my life has been routinized is that a word made routine um even if it's been somewhat irregular and intermittent and not necessarily daily or even weekly even what i what i love about kind of your attitude toward those is yeah as soon as we start getting almost religious about it if we're we're kind of what we were saying, if, if we feel guilty about missing something, is it really of benefit to you anymore? And taking a couple of days off of intermittent fasting or journaling or anything like that, it kind of speaks to the, uh, the Christian slash Jewish idea of taking a Sabbath, even from that, which you find to be of benefit. Yeah. Which unfortunately I think is very difficult to do when church involvement is also highly emphasized in this Christian culture. Right. Yeah, it's almost it's almost as if in this Christian culture, it's almost like you have to take a Sabbath apart from the Sunday morning, like choose a Friday or a Monday or... Do you want to hear my 
unpopular opinion about church. I'm ready. I think churches should restructure to have their services Sunday evenings because of how our culture is built. It would encourage people to actually take weekends. Yes. And then they could start the beginning of their week Sunday nights with church. Oh my freaking I don't love know that. why someone <laughs> hasn't done that. But so for instance, I I didn't think of this until I went to Brazil on a mission trip, but down there there their work week is Sunday through Thursday. Um, but in keeping with the Sunday tradition, they've just opted to have their services at night, which is really, which is, I think, really interesting and uh, pretty cool to like try and maintain that tradition. And, and frankly, uh, as someone who grew up in a pastor's home and as someone who has had close friends be pastors and, ch- and church staff, I, I frankly think it's pretty unfair to not allow people <laughs> the time to rest and like not only do pastors and their families not experience much of a weekend, but then it, it, it inherently will make people feel guilty whether or not it's explicit for missing church. Yeah. Like, especially if you're a volunteer, like for real, yeah. it's like, you're not getting paid mm-hmm. and like you're spending like eight hours at a building for, f- for free. Yeah. I almost, I almost wonder if, if the movement to, for a, a church to publish their sermons via podcast, mm-hmm. I wonder if that almost encourages people to skip because because they want their Sunday mornings to sleep in or have breakfast with the family or go on a hike, the 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 sermon podcast is kind of feeding that attitude instead of helping it. I almost feel like, oh, it's online. Like I can always get the the sermon. Well, that's the critique that I hear from some churches that don't want to do podcasting or put their sermons online because they know that. Yeah. Right, they're not gonna come. They're just gonna do but it online. I, this was kind of in my head as I had started philosophy. I definitely started it with like a little bit of a evangelistic mindset. Like, you know, let's go participate in like the culture happening around us and allow a space to have these conversations more easily in a context that isn't church. And even though I don't think I've had that emphasis for a while, I think that, I think that maybe the same should be said for church. Like, okay. Like the, the the context in what we're in is, uh, you know, we take weekends and we go to brunch and, you know, everyone's doing that. So uh, <laughs> maybe let's, if we're like serious about reaching the communities and culture around us and impacting it for good, then let's participate in that. Like, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we have church at night when nobody else is doing anything? It's like, why aren't you participating in the community? Why wouldn't we be going out and having brunch and interacting with the business owners around us and getting to know people and tipping well and yes, buying good please things and tip well <laughs> why wouldn't we be doing that plus I, I think you're right you're absolutely right about um the importance of the tradition of sabbath and rest and that's certainly like a really ancient wisdom that we've yeah. kind of forgotten uh what all of this is reminding me of the uh, the local billings community cmyk oh, yeah. led by matt blakesley like they have their podcast mm-hmm. yes they have a sunday morning gathering and an evening gathering mm-hmm. kind of like already pushing the cultural shift in that way. Like you can come at night, you can enjoy it. I think they serve beer cause they're at the art house. Mm-hmm. Um, even for that every once a month, CMYK practices what they call a Sabbath gathering, oh. which is literally to say, we're not meeting this Sunday. Mm-hmm. Stay home, enjoy a breakfast with your family, go get kick-ass waffles at Eben, mm-hmm. you know, uh, but like, be intentional about the time that we're giving you by quote, not holding church. Mm -hmm. The other interesting thing that CMYK does in my opinion is that 
they're, they're, they showcase different musicians mm-hmm. who aren't maybe not necessarily Christians or they find themselves in that weird in between. That's what I like about CMYK. They're not, they're not completely ex-evangelical. I don't, yeah, I don't, yeah. That might be a good word for it. You can tell that they're trying to experiment with some restructuring. Well, right. and they and they right. even welcome people who wouldn't self-identify as Christian yes. anymore, yeah. which is interesting to me. They also have far shorter teachings, mm-hmm. um, which I which I like because they're kind of picking up that older f- traditional flavor of a, a like a Catholic homily. Mm-hmm. Like the event is not the teaching, mm-hmm. the right. event is the community, which. Again, going back to kind of the other, the church structure we're discussing, the, the, the sermon podcast is kind of even helping promote, we gather on Sunday so we can sit for 40 minutes and listen to this guy teach us something. Yeah. Whereas the homily would say, here's a, here's a scripture reading based on the church calendar. Mm-hmm. We read this at the same time every year. We go through Lent, we lead up to Easter, we go through Christmas all these things, but we have the scripture reading and a homily, eight, nine minutes. Give us eight, nine minutes to kind of give a, give a theme for the reading. But the, the event that we're all gathered here for is not a motivational talk or, you know, it's not like the Christian Ted talk. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Which I think is unfortunate that like that's become our perception of it because like, for instance, that's been, really enjoyable for me doing something like philosophy because in that sense i don't think that what really matters is the opinions we come we come with and the opinions we walk away with but the fact that we were doing it to begin with the fact that we were meeting together and discussing ideas and um and that that was happening within a subculture and in a community space and not not just isolated and closed off and in group out groupy and and that it wasn't centered around <laughs> agreeing to a set of beliefs anyway. Sure. Yeah, know. absolutely. I recently heard a term to borrow a, a phrase from Eisenhower, the original Dwight Schrute. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it the American evangelical industrial complex. Oh yeah. You know, who's also, uh, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but you know, who is also somewhat responsible for that? Not Kellogg, but Quaker. Quaker is, yeah, the guy who started Quaker. I don't remember his name. He wasn't. His name wasn't Quaker. <laughs> but that branding is is basically responsible for uh, the idea of individualized salvation. Wow, it's really really interesting when you read into it. I found an article a while back, and I can't remember what media had put it out. I don't think it was the Atlantic, but it was a pretty detailed look at how his introduction of that branding. Um, not only is historically inaccurate, but is basically responsible for our concept of Protestant individualized salvation. Wow, I love that. I've been that's crazy. Slowly, slowly reading through Isaiah and Jeremiah right now, and uh, the thing that pops out to me that I've heard plenty of theologians talk about is we we've lost our conception of the collective sin or the collective grace or the collective mm-hmm. malfunction that causes an entire nation or an entire city to fall into quote into sin that the prophets would interpret as God saying, now I need to wipe you out and start over or, you know, something like that. Boy, that, and that certainly kind of lands as a good critique for, I want to even say like individual psychology a little bit. 
which is rather interesting because our patron uh, saint of a quote for our podcast is from Alfred Adler, who is kind of credited as the as the man who kind of started the individualist psychology movement. Yeah. Well, and uh, this is really interesting too, because uh, this is a problem that's come up at Beerlosophy a number of times. Um, there's one individual who has also been, I was thinking about this last week. It's been really incredible to watch him develop as a conversationalist and as a person being more open-minded, and even though he's very much entrenched in the things he believes and very adamant about that. I, I can't seem to get him around his belief that because individuals make decisions that there is no impact on the individual, like nothing else makes decisions for the individual. And therefore like, I know it's, (laughs) I don't know how, as someone who's like so entrenched in sociology and like being familiar with social psychology, maybe I'm like too much so because I like can't figure out how to explain to him no, like social structure completely limits the decisions we make and impacts the decisions we make. And that also, when we think about mob mentality, that the group is different than the individual and the group can make decisions, even though I completely agree with him that it is the individuals making the decisions, but... uh, They're making the decision to make that decision together, but they're still being affected by the other person's decision mm-hmm. especially with the mob mentality thing and and i agree that it's hard to hold those things in tandem especially when like two fields like psychology and sociology seem completely different and they certainly have different emphases right like one's on the individual and one's the study of a group and so that can seem a little contradictory until you start thinking about the impact that an individual can have on the group and the impact that the group has on the individual and the way that those two are really intention with each other wow and that makes such a good pairing for your double major holy cow i didn't realize the implications of that like you get to i that that kind of speaks to your personality as well you kind of get to like plant a foot on either side of the line and say for those of us who are too maybe too bent into the enlightenment idea of the individual being the 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 perfect embodiment of what it is to be human like we can get too atomized if we're leaning too far that way over the horseshoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but those of us, um, I think is probably more of a liberal bent if we're going to give them bigger scores and something like openness on the big five uh, personality traits. You know, the more openness we have, the more we lean into groups, uh, group think. Um, I don't want to say mob mentality because that has a inherently negative, you know, like we're yeah. mobbing in the streets kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but as certainly people who are more of the, I don't, not, politically liberal bent but of the psychologically and maybe sociologically liberal bent we we might lean into more of the social construct i think that's kind of where we get uh like intersectionality as well yes yeah well and i think maybe it can be helpful for some people to think about groups historically like if you think back to i don't know like you can think of any group label Republicans or Democrats or the English or something like if you talk about a group historically, you would say like the English did this and the English moved into this territory. And we know that what we mean by that is not all of the English people went down to Africa and all collectively decided to do this thing. But we know that we're like referring to an aggregate mind. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like we know we're not a bunch of ant robots. Like, right. But we, we, we might take the, the, the mean or the average of the culture to describe 
Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. Sure. Yeah. And there's also on the other side, there's certainly critique of personalized therapy and questioning how much good it actually does. And, but on the other end, we can't just focus completely on the aggregate and dehumanize the individual. So it's certainly attention. And that, and that's something interesting that's happening. I think to our generation right now is like, um, we're of the people who, if we weren't born in the age of the big five tech companies, we're certainly, we were certainly like under the age of 10, probably by some, by the time some of them were popping up. And you know, what, what social media kind of encourages us to do is try and stand out as an individual among the crowd. Ugh. And, and the more we, we push for followers, likes, comments, and all this, the more we want to individuate, um, the more isolated we feel. And like, that's, that's coming out in a lot of, in a lot of recent studies saying that those, uh, those of us who are addicted to social media actually feel the most isolated psychologically from the people we actually get to like hug <laughs> Or sit next to in the coffee shop or sit next to in the, in the chairs at church. Like we, we feel too much. Like we have to be the individual that we can't, we can't even find shelter in our group, Mm -hmm. you know? But again, that's mediated by our culture that's steeped in Western thought and individualization versus the collective anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So, which yeah, collectivism might tend to be more, Maybe Eastern philosophies, they, they lean into the importance of the group. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, even, and even in Native American philosophy as yeah. well. Yes. Yeah. You, you really see like a leaning into family, you know, like generations, like three or four generations might live in under the same roof. And that's what more important is where you came from. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. And not who you are now or where you're going. See also Moana. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess Hawaiian natives would certainly mm-hmm. kind of fit that too. Thanks for joining us. Remember to listen in again for the second half of this interview with Josh Lallan. And remember, the only normal people you know are the ones you don't know very well. <laughs>